Ryan, put the vibrator away. Never. You can pry it from my cold, dead hands. <laughs> you gotta kickstart it like a motorcycle. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Four Color Nerds comic podcast, episode 68. I'm Ryan, and I'm joined by some other nerds, Rory, hey. Matt, Howdy. and Carissa. Hey, ya. Together we take on this week's comics. Each week we read a variety of comics and gather here to discuss them. This is a review show, so there will be spoilers. If you don't want to hear spoilers take a break now go read your week's books and then come on back each week one of us picks their favorite book and that's our pick of the week this week i am that nerd this week the pick of the week goes to spider woman number 17 our companion song for this is three is a magic number by blind melon it's a cover of the schoolhouse rock song mainly because there's a part in there where they talk about three is a magic number and like an ancient mystic trinity and they talk about family in there and i think that that kind of ties in with spider woman so let's take a listen Somewhere in that ancient mystic trinity, you'll get three. It's the magic number. In the past and the present and the future, faith and hope and charity. In the heart and the brain and the body, you'll give you three. It's the magic number. Now it's three. So Spider-Woman number 17 from Marvel Comics, written by Dennis Hopeless, pencils and inks by Veronica Fish, colors by Rachel Rosenberg. So this, somewhat sadly, is the last issue of Spider-Woman from this team that we're going to get. So bum. And the whole Spider-Woman arc has been really special, in my opinion. It's been full of humor, the art has been fantastic, the character development has been really great. I just think it's been one of the most honest and touching books for me. I've really enjoyed this run on Spider-Woman. Even through the changes with the artist, with Veronica Fish picking up on it, I think that to me, took a little bit away from the book, but kind of just as I was getting used to her art in there, it's the end of the line for this. This particular issue, Jessica is having a party so all of her friends can meet her goofy new boyfriend, the porcupine, and they're getting ready for the party, and they're having kind of the normal discussions about their kid, who's alone by himself for the first time, but there's a baby monitor there that they're listening to, and they're talking, and they start kind of making out, and then everyone shows up and is kind of staring at them. So like all the Marvel superheroes are there to hang out with them and see them. So Roger has to go downstairs because something happens on the baby monitor to check on the baby. Jessica is left upstairs on the roof talking to everyone and I was really kind of surprised at how nasty they made Natasha in this. I don't know what beef she's got with the porcupine or what her deal is but she's being... She's elitist. Right and then they have part where Jessica is just kind of like drinking wine and like biting her tongue My for it. My spirit animal just chugging. <laughs> yeah. Was it like drowned it in wine? And then there's a part where Natasha is talking about how Clint used to be a super villain also but you know he was like a sharpshooter in the circus porcupine is just a clown and that's when jessica kind of like has it yeah i called him a d-lister man that was cold yeah i know <laughs> he's the brooklyn brawler of villains <laughs> so they start yelling at each other and you cut kind of over to roger who's downstairs going to check on the baby and munching on some pretzels while he's walking along 
peanut butter pretzels. Yeah, I just, I like how they kind of portray Roger as always this kind of lovable kind of goof. He's almost like a really hairy, like Homer Simpson in a way. He gets to the room and he sees the baby is starting to develop like Jessica's powers. Like he can crawl on walls, he can zap people with the spider venom blast things. And that's when kind of this madcap chase takes off with the kid where you get the things that I love (laughs) that this book always delivers for me is where you have a motion throughout a two-page spread here where they have almost like a little family circus trail of the kid crawling on the walls and Roger trying to catch him. Then the kid like goes out the window and is climbing up the side of the building. And that's when you have this, what I think is kind of a cool shot where Jessica is like yelling at them and basically telling all the heroes that she's happy now and she doesn't need to be a superhero because there's more than enough of them to handle everything. And that's when you see like the baby while she's talking, like climbing up like the little flagpole thing. (laughs) <laughs> while she's talking everyone's kind of like staring at him and nova's like um uh behind you and then you get kind of some amusing parts where all the heroes try and grab the kid it's really funny because spider-man goes to get him and the kid slips out of his arms and then natasha starts yelling at him about how lame they are and she goes to grab him and gets kicked spider-man gets zapped carol drops him natasha gets kicked right in the face and then it's like humiliation is real <laughs> She's like, I will tell you though, a baby kick or the back of their head to your face is exceptionally painful and very powerful. So. I love Jen and uh, Thor's <laughs> conversation. Oh, was like, maybe we should help out? Like, by what? By hitting it with our hammer? Yeah. <laughs> She's like, yeah, probably not. The part that really won me over to this book, and I think sums up the experience of Spider-Woman to its fullest extent, is where the kid, he drops from, like, the power line, and Roger's telling them all to calm down, that he thinks this is a game, that everyone's chasing him, and, you know, he's laughing and he's having fun, and the only way you're going to calm him down is if everybody just chills the fuck out, that the kid will calm down. And the chip bowl that he's landed in is kind of spinning around in the background, and then it, like, goes over the edge of the building. And this is the part where I just, ah, Roger, gotta love that lovable goof, right? So, kid's falling off the side of the building, and Roger leaps off the side of the building to grab him. Now, Roger doesn't have any powers. He can't fly, he's not super strong, he's not super tough, but when the moment is needed, he shows that he really is a hero. He didn't hesitate. Right. They comment on that, and he kind of has a cool line where he's like, what are you talking about? There's a roof full of superheroes. I knew I wasn't going to hit the ground. (laughs) So then you get that moment where all the superheroes are like, yeah, I kind of see it. They've kind of accepted him and this little put-together family that they've made. I just really liked this issue. I thought the art was great. He gave me my favorite thing as a going away. He gave me a motion through panels that I like. The writing was on point and funny. The characterizations were there. Kind of touches on the strength of Spider-Woman, which is family, really well. This is like one of the things I dig that people are doing so much in modern comic books is you're starting to see like superheroes living normal lives. It's like sex in the city with like superpowers. Right. I generally enjoy this. You don't really think about it much until it gets brought up comic book like this where there's going to be times where they have get togethers, parties. This one thinks more like how I met your mother in superheroes. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of what made Marvel different from DC when they first came out is they dealt with real life. I mean at the time it was dealing with teenagers real lives with Spider-Man having actual problems and things like that but I think as their reader base gets older, they're showing you real life of who actually reads comic books now, which is older people with kids. Yeah, They're tapping into that in the same way. I do like that as well. I wouldn't necessarily call this Sex in the City. It's like modern superhero family. But it's kind of like what I liked about the Justice League in the mid-90s, the Giffen books, when it was like Booster Gold, Blue Beetle, and all that. It wasn't always just, let's go beat up some people. I like having the characters be more realistic. I like every once in a while just having an issue where you're not really just fighting some guy trying to take over the world or something. Did find a little bit of annoying that Clint Barton is up on the roof with Jennifer Walters and she's not trying to pound his face into the ground. I don't find that believable. (laughs) 
Well, there was actually a couple things in here where I felt like they stepped away from what's going on in the Marvel Universe. I think they just are like, we're going to tell our story. We're not going to get caught up in the Marvel stuff on our going away. You know, they had a good run of it. I mean, they had not only this issue of Spider-Woman, there was another Spider-Woman series before this, dealing with her actual pregnancy and stuff, you know. So they've had, you know, a good amount of issues. The thing is annoying, and we were talking about how much we like seeing this, but they're canceling books that have this. It seems like this series is very polarized. I personally love this series. This made me love Spider-Woman and Jessica Drew, which I liked her okay before, but this made me like, I'm a fan. And I totally chalked it up to this team. But it seems that some people are like, that's dumb, I could care less about Mommy Spider, you know, and also, like, there's a lot of, like, really jerk sexist, chauvinistic comments about this series. Wait, and it really was pissing me off. I didn't want to argue on the internet, but I was like, wow. That's what the internet's for. I know. <laughs> right. Arguing about comic books. <laughs> yeah, and porn. And characters that are ruining your child. I personally am very sad that it's going away. I love that team. I even commented on Hopeless's Twitter. It made the character relatable. Felt very authentic. It felt like that was actually like a real person. It didn't seem contrived as team. They were individually going through the new parenthood. So it really translated. Seems realistic. Like you're peeking into this, these people's lives. Yeah, I think people who don't like this probably have never read it. They just heard the concept and thought they don't want to hear about Super Mom or Super Dad or whatever. But yeah. the actual book itself has so much heart and humanity to it and it's so relatable. I don't know anyone who's actually read it who disliked it. Those people, I say, go read one of the other 200 books published every week. Uh-huh. I know, seriously. You have plenty of the same. <laughs> I'm like really, really disappointed in Marvel for canceling this. Kind of a niche character. You know, not a super popular character to begin with. And they're doing something different with her that is really good, but you can see why it doesn't get the numbers. Quality does not always equal sales. And Marvel is doing a thing with going in a new direction after Secret Empire anyway. So they're getting rid of a lot of stuff. It's surprising that you're saying how she's so niche because her universe has a line of clothing and they had some Spider-Woman items. And I was really surprised in that because usually they only tend to do merchandise items for characters that are really popular. I think this has been a really great special run. I hope they come out with a hardcover collection for it because I will buy it, put it on my shelf. It's just had so many great moments through it. The part with her in the hospital where she's giving birth and the scrolls are attacking, that's one of my favorite storylines of all time in Marvel Comics. It's really special. I feel, although this book hasn't gotten the recognition, I feel that this book has been Eisner quality for a long time, and hopefully they actually get some of that recognition. I think I will give it five. Thank you all so, so, so much. I gave it five. I didn't want Boyo Fallen Alone. I'm going to give it five peanut butter pretzel nuggets. Because <laughs> those things are fucking good. They yeah, are. They are. <laughs> Porcupine indoors. I will give it five Howard the Duck standing behind everybody eating oh, a I sandwich. I totally love that. I'm glad somebody grabbed that one. Oh, wow. Another five. So that was a little warm family hug. So now let's go over to the exact opposite of that. Yeah, now I'm going to shit all over that. (laughs) (laughs) So we've got Clean Room number 17, Vertigo Comics, Waiting for the Stars to Fall, written by Gail Simon. The pencils and inks by Walter Giovanni. Colors by Quentin Winters. This one, the demons are making some sort of big play, and so it starts off where everybody's, their electronics go dead. This is part of this plan that they laid out in a previous issue of Clean Room, where they said everything's going to go dead, we're going to start crashing planes, we're going to have the president shoot his wife in the head and all this stuff. They have this plan to torture humanity. <laughs> this is the very first step with that, where go outside, everybody keeps on saying there's something wrong with the stars. The Hillbilly Brothers, they've been kicking the crap 
trap out of the surgeon. They trapped him last issue, and, and he's kind of like telling them their plot. In the meantime, Astrid has got her super fan <laughs> <laughs> trapped in the clean room. He is trapped. Chloe and the blonde chick. Astrid is trying to find out where they're at, so she forces him to take him back because she's got ultimately the power over it. She eventually gets them out, and then of course the little baby, because you know babies are evil. <laughs> the little baby has gotten this guy with his weird, severely disfigured face. He's the one meditating out in the woods. He's now showed up to the little baby, and she's had him like pick him up, and like they're going somewhere. Everything's breaking loose. Of course, the creepy scene where you get to see Astrid flash back to a memory of her father, because you know she could see him as a demon, and so she's actually showing it to him, and then she like takes over the clean room because the guy at first he's like got power over her on it, and then eventually she kind of like lets her hair down, freaks out, and completely takes back over the clean room. And then a really cool scene I thought was where she tells him about how his victim escapes and kills him, right? Because he's he's talking about how he survived death just like Astrid has. And so she was telling him, she's like, you can't remember death. She goes, but it's like something in between a man and a hurricane. She goes, I'm going to hold you here and let you see death. And then death actually comes in. I don't know. I thought that was a cool. It was cool. But it was nice to get back to clean room. It's a little bit different with the art style. I've noticed some changes, but it's still damn good. So there's, there's a classic Twilight Zone episode where these people start turning on each other and you find out at the end there's like these aliens watching them to see what they're going to do. That reminds me of the scene in the streets where everyone's out on the street and there's a little alien, little kid kind of manipulating them all to start turning on each other. Yeah. And you've got people holding shotguns, people, and you can start to see the breakdown of humanity. I really liked that part. Yeah. <laughs> kid started, because he's like, oh, her hands changed, but really it's the kid all along. I don't know, this issue just didn't feel as on par with other issues to me. It had some of the creep factor, just didn't seem nearly as good. I think the art does make this a little, like, a step less, I think, because most of it's pretty on par, but John Davis Hunt, when he does his horrific things, are truly fucking nightmarishly yeah. horrific. It seems to fall flat for me. I liked it quite a bit, actually. And the reason I liked it is kind of 90s nostalgia. This feels like 80s, 90s vertigo. Yes. <laughs> Spot on British invasion, 80s, 90s vertigo, like Grant Morrison and Garth Ennis and Warren Ellis. And well, this would never happen, but Alan Moore just got into a room and they just said, let's make a book. Art kind of reflects that because it also looks a lot like a lot of the 80s vertigo books did, especially the horrifying things. Yeah, this is the one that made me actually start looking at Vertigo's books again. I actually like, though, the flashback with Astrid's past. The thing knows, Astrid knows, that it's not her dad. He's like, come on, give daddy a hug, I'll tell you. And then he whispers while he's hugging. Oh, that's so messed up. Yeah, the clean room demons, not only are they physically terrifying and can hurt you, they hurt your soul as well. I think they really nail that with them. Yes, very much so. I don't know, it might be because I'm a ginger, so I'm along with the evil in this book, because everything evil in this book has red hair. It's just not horrific to me. I was totally getting a Medusa vibe from Astrid when she has her hair down and it's all whipping around in the clean room. Yeah. I totally was going to say that too. The other girl in the clean room comes up. They're like, your hair! Like, I feel like there's something more significant to that when her hair starts doing that. That means something. Her hair's always up. Maybe there's a reason why it's always up. That hurricane version of death that you were talking about, Rory, it kind of oh. looks like Root has like, <laughs> in the, like, the 90s has gone to like a rave. <laughs> it's like a goth rave version of Groot. 
It looks like a weird, like, almost like Ryuk from Death Note. I'm gonna give it four. It's literally gonna rain blood. (laughs) (laughs) I gave it three and three quarters. Give Daddy a hug. I will give it four and a half critters. I will give it four. There's something wrong with the stars. Speaking of stars. Hell yeah. (laughs) Star-Lord, number five. Marvel Comics, The Heist, Earth-Lord, part five. Written by Chip Zdarsky. Pencils and inks by Chris Anka. And colors by Matthew Wilson. Last we left off, Black Cat. Cat was blackmailing Star-Lord into pulling a heist for her so Edmund can save his son because they have him hostage. Edmund is trying to get the hang of using the gloves and boots again. They were told that they couldn't make any phone calls or get any help but clearly uh, Star-Lord is being shysty with that. You see him on the phone with Kitty. They're at the bar and Black Cat's like oh we're gonna close this down because basically it served her purposes. Eight ball and quilt face. You know she's a shocker. It's like, but maybe they're coming after me and maybe they're picking us off. She's tying up loose ends and she tells all the people in the bar take out the old lady that we've seen before that's in the back of the bar that no one was really bothering take her out and your tabs are are met so you don't have to pay me back and so like all these b-list thugs c-list d-list all of them like yeah but the person that black cat sent star lord and edmund to rob is that old lady's house because apparently she's like a famous burglar herself star lord with his mask on can see all the lasers and the security they're doing their thing they're breaking in it seems easy peasy and the fight's not going so uh, well at first for the old lady but then shink old man logan's there with his stunning costume of eye patch his disguise yeah. <laughs> i did think that was funny <laughs> and he starts helping and it's like weird old people flirting fighting bonding it's very <laughs> kind of strange and then we go to where the son is tied up and the thugs guarding him are just silly chuckleheads. Yeah, I'm not going to give you a bite of my $12 pastrami sandwich. You're just a bartender. And all of a sudden, then we see the smiling face of Daredevil showing up. That's a good time. That's a good time. I like right before Daredevil shows up that the guy is like describing what it would take to find him. And he's like describing yeah. Daredevil exactly. Unless he's got yeah. some sort of secret hound dog powers. Yeah. <laughs> and he's a ninja. <laughs> and then the smile black cat really didn't need them to burglar because you know she's obviously a burglar herself but she sees it as she's ruling this town and so it's her job as the leader to delegate it would set a bad tone or example to see her like stooping to do the work yeah she's all about delegation she's management now <laughs> can't actually do anything and then i think it was really cute with the fighting with logan and javelin how shocker and the eight ball head guy and some of the other ones that we've seen with a little bit more focus on throughout this series they start to turn kind of like good guys to help it seems like star lord in his weird way has been like a good example to them <laughs> i love how with the blasty hands he like melts the wreckers crowbar he's like no <laughs> he's get tears and like snot running down his face nerd aside that's not just a regular freaking crowbar <laughs> that thing has you know as guardian yeah. It is a Loki-empowered. Not anymore. <laughs> so then we get to the cliche villainous monologuing, which is funny because Edmund totally says, I'm not interested in your fucking monologue. <laughs> but her whole thing was, yeah, you're not gonna go. Yeah, you did what you did for me, but I still have things with you, and it seems like Peter had put that together. They get helped by Daredevil. He shows up, you know, in the nick of time, but the problem is Peter tries to stop Black Cat from taking off as she's trying to escape, and as they're fighting, fucking S.H.I.E.L.D. shows up, of all people. <laughs> <laughs> or not S.H.I.E.L.D. It's 
brand. They're trying to stop her. But what happens is that Edmund tries to stop her from escaping and he has her locked in place and he's explaining, you know, the boots and how all that works. Oh, so sad. So she notices because he's struggling still to hold her. He's locked in place, but he's an old man and his heart's giving out and things are not going his way. And Things never go your way when you go against the black cat. That panel where it's like the up close of her mouth whispering in his ear. You know, you're not supposed to cross a black cat. And it's just so sinister and just mean and vile. And it's so sad because then she does her little like kick in the air, knocks him off course and he like falls. And the son and Peter both watch him fall and it ends with him crunched into a car. It doesn't look good. I've surprisingly liked most issues of Star-Lord, which made this issue a big disappointment for me because this issue kind of sucked, in my opinion. I didn't think it was very funny. I didn't think what was happening was very clear. I didn't think people's motivations made sense. The most important thing is I didn't laugh very often. I just felt like this issue just missed the mark for me in almost every way. The art was fine. I don't have any complaints about that. I don't know. I disagree. I think that there's lots of action in this. Bar Brawl I thought was great. It kind of made me laugh that like there was just this big, huge D-lister showdown. There's a little bit of Wolverine cheesecake in there for the ladies. <laughs> that was funny. I enjoyed it. The only thing that wasn't really clear was why Black Cat would show up last second. In Star-Lord's varied history, he's never really made much sense. I do like the book. I like the art. I love his new costume. I'm sad that they're just going to change it again in a little bit, probably, because they keep changing his fucking costume. I don't really like his beard because it just looks wrong on him. Pretty sure the dad's dead in the next issue because the end of this book ends with him in a tux looking up at the stars. I loved the patch reference because he even wore a tank top. That was just fantastic. It was a little creepy weird, but the old people flirting I thought was a cute little real life kind of thing. Like two really weird dark people who hang out in dark seedy bars yeah. and have shady pasts. Uh, maybe they hook up. It's a Star-Lord book, so I'm not expecting funny. It's a Darsky, though. He's been funny since the movie, but Star-Lord was never a comedy character. <laughs> and nobody read him. <laughs> no. Yeah, that's true. Nobody read him. I feel like some of the humor might have been lost because maybe Chip didn't want to have all that humor with something so dire happening at the end. Black Cat. I, normally I like her. I don't really like her in this. She's really broken bad. I'm confused by her. When did she yeah. turn so evil? Not even the flirtatious sort of villain Catwoman clone ripoff that she's supposed to be. She's just, I'm evil. I end up giving this three and a half eye patches. I will give it one for Wolverine's entrance and one for Daredevil's entrance. Two Bloodhound Ninjas. <laughs> I'm going to give it three and a half like a terrifying bike ride. I'll give it three and a half patch cameo. I liked it. I thought it was good. We had a little old man Logan here. Let's get some more X-Men. Some X-Men. X-Men Prime number one by Marvel Comics. Written by Mark Guggenheim, Greg Pack, and Colin Bunn. Pencils and inks by Ken Lashley, Ibrahim Robertson, Leonard Kirk, and Guile Moore Ortego. And colors by Murray Hollowell, Frank Armata, and Michael Garland. Why do I always pick books that have a billion creative staff? Because this one is introducing all three X books. So there's three creative teams here. It basically is kind of rebooting the X properties into something that people might give a shit about again. And it makes clear reference to that. It has literally <laughs> called Resurrection so that you can kind of get back to things. It did a, a really good kind of cover the thousand foot view of everybody. You've got Storm bringing Kitty back in. You've got the new X-Men is I think what they're technically called. But I don't know if they're still called the new X-Men. Now they're just X-Men Blue in the comic at least. They're probably just going to be X-Men. But they're going off to do their own crazy 
crazy shit. They've got just all kinds of like weapon XY goodness there with Lady Deathstrike. It was a fairly good book. Good to kind of start everything off, but it wasn't really a deep book because it's meant to boot up the rest of the series. I did make note though that you've got instead of Kitty Pride really, the look that they gave her in this was Kate. She's got her hair up in a bun and she's even wearing a high collared green jacket. So they kind of like the Days of Future Past Kate Pride instead of the young Kitty Pride. They brought in a bunch of old stuff with reasons for her to stay. Peter's there, or Piotr. You've got Jubilee, which is going to lead off into the Generation X book. You've got some of the, I'm guessing, Generation X kids. It was all in all a good way to boot it up, but it wasn't really a super book. But it really can't be, because it's not going to be one of the ongoing series. This was just the kind of get it kicked off. It's not going to be very deep. It's not going to be very storied. It's just a, hey, let's cover all these points, and this is the direction we're starting to go in. And I thought it did a really good job of that. This book is really more like, hey, remember the X-Men? Remember you used to like them? Remember why? Remember the 90s? Remember you loved these guys? Look at all these great characters! (laughs) Please give us money for them again. Like, I am in a weird position where I'm finding myself interested in reading all of the X-Books, which has not happened in many a moon. I am also feeling like that, and I don't know how I feel about feeling like that. (laughs) It's a confusing time. We'll get through it. Though I did find it funny that they just decided, you know what, let's just drop the mansion down into the middle of Central fucking Park. Because no one's going to have a problem with that. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Not to mention, you're going to have people smoking crack in the back of the danger room and shit, you know? (laughs) Like, that's not exactly where I want to plant my school. (laughs) For the most part, I like artwork on it. I found the plot for this one. I mean, I I know that they were trying to cover stuff stuff and stuff like that. I found like the setup on it like really just not very entertaining. But I'm looking forward to seeing what they're doing that being said. It's also really long. It's almost like 40 pages. It's like a double issue. That's one of the things that having a bunch of different creative staff do. They like to do kind of a semi-anthology book where it's a bunch of separate stories with different creators. But it's all one long story when you really get down to it. Like each team gets like 10 or 15 pages to run their issue zero. There's kind of a really classic trope that I think Joss Whedon did really best where Kitty Pride walks through the halls of the X-Mansion that she's left behind and she gets to see all these memories. I did like when they did that. I'm a huge X-Men fan so the idea that it's going to go back to more of that classic stuff that I like and actually renew my interest is really appealing to me. This plot wise didn't really have much. I'm also not a huge Kitty Pride fan so I gave it four. I'm interested to see where this is going to go. I love the classic X-Men feels far more than I thought I missed them. Like, now that it's back, I realize just how much I really did miss it and how much the Marvel Universe was missing it. I'm going to give it four and a half kittens. I gave it three and a half. You do stuff like this with your champion pals. <laughs> I am excited to see what's going to come up with this, so I'm going to give it three Oh, you'll see. So I'm still keeping us over in Marvel. I have Infamous Iron Man number six from Marvel Comics, written by Brian Michael Bendis, pencils and inks by Alex Maleev, colors by Matt Hollingsworth. So last week we talked about Iron Man with Riri, and I got to thinking that we haven't really checked in on the other half of Iron Man here, which is... Victor Von Doom. This book reminded me why. There were parts of this book that I liked, but I think that this book has a more complicated plot going on than the stuff with Riri does. This book really has a couple different, two main segments. The first segment is you get Reed Richards and Ben Grimm and Victor when they're in college just talking mad shit to each other. Reed wants to help Dr. Doom 
I don't think he's a doctor yet, though. <laughs> you know, he wants to help Doom, but Doom is convinced that he's jealous of his work and see all those classic kind of character touch points interacting with each other. I totally felt this was a Fantastic Four issue, not an Iron Man issue, and that they just don't think that they can sell Fantastic Four books, so they slap Iron Man on the on the title. Probably not half wrong, you know? <laughs> I mean, I think that they're working up to, I really hope, at least when they do their relaunch to sort of a more classic Marvel, that they bring back Fantastic Four, or maybe in part of Secret Empire. I'm not sure how they're going to do it, but they really do need to bring them back, I think. But this one is the wizard is talking to Modok about infamous Iron Man going to all these villains and like knocking them off. It's kind of interesting because there's that classic trope where you're talking about someone and then there's that moment where like they're right behind me aren't they? (laughs) So you have that moment where the wizard is trying to convince Modok that Doom is super dangerous and needs to be taken out. And Modok's like, you're totally right. And the wizard is like, oh, I've convinced you. And he's like, uh, turn around. He's right behind you. And that's when the fight between the two of them starts. I thought it was kind of an interesting fight because you've got kind of some sorcery duels that are going on between them. But then the wizard ends up using his like anti-gravity platforms that he slaps on like doom's feet and sends him skyrocketing into the sky and doom can't figure out because the wizard has made them immune to sorcery so he can't figure out how to break them or stop them so he ends up ejecting his boots which i thought was kind of a clever way to get rid of them so his boots are still flying up in the air but he's falling to the ground and ends up using his repulsor blasts on the ground to kind of stop himself from falling and that's when the ever helpful shield (laughs) shows up not before though you do get doom having a vision of something which i think is from the ultimate universe i was actually gonna ask you matt what you thought that was that he sees the blue yeah i was wondering what that was i think that has to do with the college of reed i wonder if that's the maker's city i think it must be uh, after he got his face scarred they basically broke reed's mind and caused him to go fucking crazy sort of much more doom like crazy don't mind if i do he basically became the doom of that universe i am personally a fantastic four fan so i've been missing the hell out of them and i've really liked this because it did feel I have to agree it feels like Fantastic Four and this ties into a lot of the multiverse stuff so you have to understand that this is Ultimate Reed who's pulled a version of Doctor Doom's mother from another dimension into here and they're doing their evil science sorcery plotting and watching him and his mother is kind of drawn to both hurt him and help him at the same time because she's been drawn into Reed's plans to attack him but it's also her son so when she actually sees the plans kind of come to fruition and Doom getting hurt and distracted she wants to go and help him and Reed kind of convinces her not to. And then there's a very bendacy bit of dialogue here where Sharon, the S.H.I.E.L.D. team, confronts Doctor Doom while his armor is like rebooting and they have about two pages of kind of talking head dialogue back and forth. I mean, it's pretty sharp and interesting dialogue, but that is one of Bendis's hallmarks and potential weak points, I think, in here. Then Iron Man's armor kind of reboots and he flies off and that's kind of where we're left with Riri hearing the news report and now she's flying off. So I think the two books are now going to start intertwining more into each other. At least for a little bit. I think you guys are right. This does feel like a Fantastic Four book, but I liked it. I did not like it. It was so wordy. I usually like Bendis's work. This was my least favorite book out of the entire week. The thing about anything with Victor Von Doom is Von Doom is a very verbose motherfucker. He fucking loves to talk. I'm still trying to get my feel for this one. The concept's interesting. I, I haven't been keeping up at all, so this is like kind of like my first dipping of my toe in the water. 
I think this one really gets into Marvel multiverses and that stuff that is like a step above your normal Marvel complexity or difficulty, which makes sense for Doom. I mean, Doom is super smart, super science, super magic all together. And then you've got Ultimate Universe coming in, and which is kind of a hallmark of the other saying Fantastic Four books, that they tend to get really metaphysical and multiverse spanning, so... They are the cosmic Marvel Universe. I didn't love this, and I didn't hate it. I really feel like this one benefits if you read all of Infamous Iron Man, but I will give it three and a half. He's right behind you. I gave it two, and it's one point for Riri showing up, and one point because Modoc was in it, and that always gets me a point because it's just funny. So two, I'll grab something. I'll give it three and a half. Uh, what's your name again? I really liked it. It gave me my Fantastic Four fix, which I always lean towards the characters who are super scientists. So I'm actually going to give this four. I'm going to have to go back and read this. Alright, moving on to Moonshine. Number six, because it's been a while since we've had some hillbilly action. Cue the jug band and banjos. Image Comics, written by Brian Azzarello, art by Eduardo Rizzo. Not a whole lot of complexity on this it's one. Cus-tastic. It's just a straight-up gangster fight. It's like the same word over and over again, which is fuck, and people getting shot. That is an accurate description of this issue. It's lots of fucks, lots of people getting shot. Everybody's like a big showdown that goes on between the rednecks, or hillbillies, or whatever you want to call them, and the gangsters from New York City. New York City! They're running through and having this big old freaking gun show and the hunter from Italy is like out there looking around and hunting. At one point or another, Perlo shows up in his full wolf on glory and he also gets shot by that same hunter who's been looking around for him. Obviously, he's going to be the one that's going to be the serious challenge for him because he's the, the special guns that they brought in. So obviously he knows something about hunting werewolves or hunting the supernatural or whatever it may be. Lots of heads getting ripped off, lots of people getting shot, lots of dead bodies and stuff. Then towards the end of it, he's got these two women that are working to like get him. They have a little showdown where Delia's standing in this big pentagram out in the woods. She's talking about like how she's like, I'm not afraid of you. I've got magic. And they're about ready to fight when Perlo shows up and he's all shot from the hunter. And they're saying how there's dark things in motion and all this stuff's going on. At the end of the issue, you see Perlo revert back to human form and he's bleeding out. It's a lot of werewolfing and shooting and fucks. <laughs> I found this one really confusing as to what was happening. Oh, really? This is the last issue. It says book one, so I hope that they actually do more because I was left with a whole lot of questions with this one. Such as? <laughs> well, I want to know what happens to Perlo. I still don't understand the relationship between those two witch women in the woods. It felt a very unsatisfying end to book one. Gotcha. I felt like it relied too much on people just shooting each other page after page with no real sense of any like strategic reason why they're doing anything. They're just driving cars into each other and shooting each other. It just was, seemed like a mess to me. I get what you're saying there. It's not like they're really like sewing up any conclusions in this one or anything like that. Or even having a gunfight that has a circle around the back to get them. Even just simple stuff like that. It's just like you said, <laughs> shooting and werewolves and gangsters and fucks. 
which, you know, if that's your thing, I guess. I'm into werewolves and gangsters. <laughs> so you just felt like all the fucks were given, but... But I gave none? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of chaotic. I kind of find humor in a lot of the fucks, fucks, I'll tell you what a fuck is, you know, that kind of thing. I continue to really like the silhouettes with the glowing eyes werewolves that they do. Like the one where she's like, can you smell me? And it drives you wild. That panel I really like. Though there was a change where some of the werewolves, when they actually showed them not in silhouette, where his snout was what the hell I'm like usually have done so good with their werewolf drawings and then it went to weird squished werewolf face and i was like i am so mad it was like two panels of that and i really didn't like that and then there were some really adorable werewolf feet on the next page and i was like, okay that makes up for it because those werewolf feet are great but near the end when they show the werewolf again he's back to having a snout and looks good so just be consistent with your artwork please they've done better than most people do with werewolf their drawings so i can't claim too much the fight was a little chaotic i don't know if they're trying to show like pacing like in a movie like and this is happening while this fight's going on but it was a little too all over the place and I didn't really understand what that summoning or whatever magic she was doing in the woods like what for and why I wish that was explained more and also his weird ears coming off his forehead that was kind of strange oh I see what you're saying are those ears or horns it's weird yeah I guess if you can't tell that's not good so are you talking about the one where she's like I know what you want me to do yeah where she's got the knife those are his ears it's supposed to be going straight back and then the ears going off to the sides i've seen other werewolves like that it's just that they didn't shade the ears really clearly so that you can see the break between the head but you have to remember it's a wolf head so it comes kind of straight down from the neck a few pages up you know when he's gnawing on the head and the lower teeth are going through the eyeballs that panel because that one's pretty great the panel in the middle it's the clear flesh color again on the ear horn things on the very top of that page they're the color of the fur i'm talking about there's no consistency they kind of let it go a lot in this one i'm a little disappointed in yeah it does jump back and forth throughout the issue too this is the first one of these i've actually read i really liked it it made me feel there's a game that taking a frustratingly long amount of time to come out called Witchmarsh. Depending on which website I look at, says it's out, and then I actually go to the game's site, and it's not out. But it's this kind of 30s horror story, which is the feel I get out of this. is like 20s, 30s prohibition mobsters, and there's occult shit going on. You know, a little bit of a kind of a Lovecraft feel. And I really liked that feeling, and I thought the art they used the space instead of using a lot of line detail. And I really liked how that played out. Artistically, it was really good, and it kind of kept the spookiness feel to the book. I really liked it. Speaking of the arts, I really do have to give this book props for how it does its coloring. That it sets the mood of a page with the color. That every page has kind of a dominant color scheme that it's doing. That really does set the mood for what's happening very well. Like you've got lots of blues and oranges and that's very well done. But it has a really tight palette. I liked it a lot. I'm going to give it four and a half dark things in motion. I didn't like it that much. I will give it two You Got Hocus Pocus. wasn't my favorite out of the series. I still liked it. I mean, a lot of the cussing is always fun. Mostly I'm taking points away because you weren't consistent with your werewolf and kind of it bums me out. So I gave it three. I'll tell you what the fuck is. <laughs> I actually liked it. I'll give it four lower jaw uh, teeth poking through the eye holes. That's metal as hells. <laughs> well, we got a double dose of werewolf this week. We do. I'm bringing in Jughead, The Hunger, number one. Archie Horror, written by Frank Thierry, I'm going with. And Pencils and Inks by Michael Walsh and Colors by Michael Walsh and D. Kniffy. Kniffy? Sure, let's go with that. I'm not usually a big Archie thing. That's mostly usually Ryan. 
opinion. Though I did like the Archie After Dark that we have covered in the past. So when I the Francovella cover with kind of this werewolf art uh, jughead, I'm like, I gotta give that a try. As the, everyone seems to know, I like me some werewolf action. It has a thing where it starts off very horror movie-esque where this little old lady is running down Main Street, clearly being chased by something unseen that we don't see. She thinks she gets away and then I never thought the Riverdale Ripper was dies. So it sets up this tale that there is this Riverdale Ripper thing happening in town and going around. And I do like the bleeding claw decapitated head thing. That, that was pretty sweet. Those panels that they did, that sequence mm-hmm. of her being decapitated, really it good. Is. That was pretty gory. And it goes to this next scene and I really like how it plays. So there's people sitting and they look horrified and there's like, oh, I just can't watch it anymore. And like someone licking their lips. Very has that kind of pacing of something horror. And then you see that it's Jughead pulling a Scooby-Doo shaggy sandwich out and like eating it. The pizza in there with the lobster claw and like the whole fish. It's everything piled high. It's very classic Scooby trope or any kind of old comic Jughead that they took it from. Yeah. Whatever. Scooby-Doo, I think it's better. <laughs> He's eating it, and then we find out that they're at, like, an all-you-eat buffet, and the owner, the proprietor, is like, here's a blank check, just leave and never come back. And his friends were really horrified watching him eat because they thought it was disgusting and gross. They're leaving, and Jughead is arguing with Reggie and thinking he's a very typical, like, kind of Archie interactions. Find out as Miss Grundy is the one who died or in the beginning of the book. They get the news, and they're like, well, the city has a curfew. You know, get back before dark fall. So... They go their separate ways. It was so sad to find out that Pop was one of the people who got killed. That made me sad. Jughead's walking and he's going, oh, poor Grundy. Oh, and you see the full moon clearly in the background of him walking. And then he also like smells something and it's like, oh, his smell's really good. And then it's Dilton and there's like talking. And then you see it happen. I kind of like this panel. So you do this thing where Jughead's eyes do the like kind of werewolf glow and the rest of the drawings gets monochromatic blue gray color and then these bright orange that match the eyes of like all the things he's noticing as he's like changing in that realization kind of like there's this panting of a dog there's this smell that smells like this I hear this person breathing these people arguing the person he's talking to their reaction so like he's not hearing what the person's saying all he hears is like the heartbeat and as it gets faster and faster as the person gets scared realizing that Jughead's not listening to him and that he's changing I really like that kind of and then we see him change with like this cool wolf claw and the little there's a thing where he wakes up, doesn't remember anything. Very typical werewolf. He finds the body of this person. And then like the weird turn of events, he runs to go see Archie because Archie's his best friend. And Archie's like, oh, I know I saw you. But then they pull like this weird Buffy kind of maneuver with Betty being like this hunter. That was not what I was expecting. Yes. And so they try to, like, okay, I, my family's been hunting your line because lycanthropy like, runs in your line, Jughead. And I don't want to kill you. I might have become your friend's to begin with but I actually am your friend even past the job kind of thing so they go to the botany park to get wolfsbane yeah because I mean she's gonna kill him but Archie kind of steps in the way and is like you know if you're gonna kill my best friend you know you're gonna have to kill me too so that's when they decide to try and go to the I do like the panel where she's explaining like his line through the ages as werewolves it's kind of cool like the werewolf hanging out over the red coats the one at the kids on lookout point behind the ship I don't know it's a really neat kind of panel and then it shows her family kind of doing the same thing like like a weird knight it's like a civil war soldier it's weird 60s ninja person reminds me of those 
episodes of Buffy where you get to see all the flashbacks of like previous chosen ones where you have like the girl in the subway and like all of those images very much like Buffy yeah. and so he eats the wolfsbane and at first it doesn't seem like it's working because he does start to change and I really do love that pant those drawings of him changing the full on because all the ones before were very kind of like slow and you mostly just saw like the hand and the claws and this one was very cool like you see like, the limbs kind of break and contort in weird ways the mouth is elongating I really liked that whole sequence for the artwork and the full on version of him in wolf form yay snouts thank you very much so there she starts to pull the gun like she's gonna like fight him because you know the wolfbane didn't work and he's attacking then all of a sudden as he's headed to her face and everything like that he just kind of starts pulling back and like in pain and just reverts back and so you think oh that's over that's the end of the book that was short okay they fixed it and then they do like a flash forward the room is destroyed and they're like this horrified look and it shows Jughead taking off and what I really think is interesting is that the reason that they're like oh we know he's gone he's already gone because they knew once they found this that I'd have no choice and it's Reggie just destroyed kind of want to see her hunt him down surprisingly <laughs> I would like that but, as a series too I think that would be pretty awesome which I was not expecting it's almost exactly what you kind of expect especially if you read the Archie after dark it's all the classic werewolf tropes but just shoved in with like Archie skins I thought it was all right it was funny didn't really do much for me overall though definitely the Betty being the Buffy type character was great I do dig the artwork I dig what they did with their like color palette and all that stuff and the art was surprisingly good when I was looking at the books we were going to read this week I was not expecting Jughead to be the better werewolf comic (laughs) 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 but I think it was I'm always really surprised at how well Archie horror works that you get really familiar kind of idealized 1950s world that people even if you haven't read a lot of Archie comics I think most people are aware of the general idea behind Archie and a lot of the characters you are surprised how much you actually know about them just from having absorbed it through osmosis and then when you add in the horror which again I feel like they do stick with like a more 1950s horror movie way of doing it it works really well I had the exact same feel of it was like a 50s horror movie, but with modern day gore levels Mm -hmm. with the blood and stuff. Also, the way that they did it, it felt kind of like the howling mixed with I was a teenage werewolf mixed with Archie Andrews. The reason that horror works so well with something like this is because it's something comfortable and horror always works best when it's something that relaxes you and then smacks you in the back of the head, right? It lets you get in there, lets you be a little comfortable. It's normal. Everything's normal. Oh, God, why is that kid looking like like that and that's where things Mm -hmm. really get scary is when it's something that you're relaxed and okay with and then there's something fucking horrible about it like it rips people apart Mm -hmm. and eats them i thought it was really good i really liked the art for this i personally i like the art on moonshine too but i do have to agree this is a little bit more work put into it the other one is a little bit more probably european or maybe frank miller inspired this is a more horror comic inspired book i liked it for that i liked the story it just it kept the perfect tone throughout the entire book and the betty i'm just gonna call her betty summers from now on that was a fantastic detail so i'm gonna give it four i will give it three and a half i'll give it three daughters cars i'm gonna give it four whoopee caps which is what his hat is actually called i did not know that so as long as we're sticking with kind of nostalgia look back, I'm going to take us over to the Commandy Challenge, number three, from DC Comics. Bug in Your Ear, written by Jimmy Palmiotti. Pencils and inks by Amanda Connors. Colors by Paul Mounts. 
Commandy Challenge is kind of a different book than any other book you're probably going to read. So this is for the anniversary of Jack Kirby. Would have been 100. Obviously, he's not with us anymore. So this is kind of taking one of his characters and having a different creative team each month do a different chapter in this story. So they each do their own art style and writing. The idea is at the end, they're going to pick a team to continue doing a regular commandy book. And the way they do it is they write a story and they write him into kind of a serialized like cliffhanger, like come back next week for the exciting conclusion, you know, that kind of thing. And then the next team has to pick it up and solve the mess that they put him into, tell their story, and then leave the book with a resolution or a problem with the next team to resolve. So this one, you may recognize Jimmy Palmiotti and Amanda Connor as being the team that does... Harley Quinn, and it's done so for quite a long time. I felt it had a lot of fun to it. I felt like I was in a maybe episode of like Flash Gordon or, you know, one of those kind of cheesy, campy shorts you would see maybe in front of a movie in like the 50s. Yeah. The book is, I think it's fun. It's fucking weird to me to begin with. It's got some kind of creepy moments to it as well, but I think, and some humor, and I think it balances those two really well. So basically, Commandy has been caught by this kind of like pirate ship full of these weird miscreants and they have these people these like plant people that they eat in order to survive but the plant people are totally cool with it because they grow back and they're like have been bred to surf and there's all these different islands that they're like navigating through on this old wrecked ship and one of the islands is full of bat people like bat savage cannibals like you might see in very much like king kong and they get attacked by these bat people and taken away to the island there where they're being prepared for a sacrifice very much like a King Kong movie, right? Like they're tied to like the post and the big giant monster is coming. There's like leopard people that are attacking them. It's just really quite different than what you might expect. And then at the end, the kind of problem that they get brought into is the leopard people have this giant leopard person who's coming to eat them. Like, you can tell, like, the size of it. It's kind of cool. He actually has, like, a necklace with, like, tanks hanging from it to kind of give you a sense of scale for how big he is. So they're tied there for the sacrifice. So the next people are going to have to figure out how they get out of that mystery. I like the idea of this. I like paying tribute to Jack Kirby. I think, like most nerds, I have a great appreciation for his work. And I feel like this kind of sense of mad hijinks and fun and otherworldly stuff that you haven't seen fits in his wheelhouse very well. There's not quite as much super science robots like that he draws, but I feel like this was an interesting issue. These ones have been hit or miss for me. And I was really kind of dreading having to read this one this week. But then when I read it, I was like, I really liked it. It was very serial adventure pulp kind of to me, and which I really like. And I thought it was funny. And there were some parts that were like really dire, like I'm I'm sorry, the bat people you end up liking on spits? That's not okay, (laughs) poor guy. But I wasn't expecting that. But I was like, oh my gosh, they just did that. And I always liked the game. I played this game as a kid or like back on old forum boards where you are telling a story and you stop and someone has to pick it up. I kind of like that because you always want to mess with the other person and do like the most outrageous thing. So I really like that idea. And so this as in general as a book, I like the concept, but some of them haven't been the best. Because there's always someone who drops the ball who's not as good at that storytelling as the person 
person before them. You never know what you're going to get. It is a mixed bag. This one I think happened to be really interesting. I like the weird plant people. I think that's really cool. I think it's funny when Kamadi and they're like the leopard people are they knocked them out number one but then they're like doing his hair and painting them. They're like we'll make you beautiful and I'm sorry maybe it's because I've watched too much Futurama but when he's tied up and with that beautiful line you see the big one. I kept on just wanting the big Kong leopard to go death by snoo snoo. <laughs> I liked it and I really like the big Kong leopard at the end. I love how it's drawn with like the whole like zebra skins just kind of draped over it. This and is stuff. almost like an improv group's writing project where it's like it was a mm -hmm. yes and yes. and you can't like nullify what anyone else has said but you have to keep going with it. That's exactly what I was yes. going to say. So I was pleasantly surprised by this this one. This team, good job, this team. Other ones in the before weren't as good. I think they're all good in their own way. This one is probably I the most fun. Yeah, it was all right. Not really my thing, once again. I like the art. It's an interesting concept, but overall, it's just not really doing much for me. Fun fact, Jimmy Palmiotti and Amanda Connors are actually husband and wife, so they might have done good teamwork because, well... Well, I know they almost exclusively work with each other. You know, they don't really work with very many other people. When you can get a writer and artist that work well together and they do stuff together, it's kind of like Josh Whedon. All of his stuff has got that added benefit of he pretty much What's always works with the same people, which makes me wonder, are they going to have his normal cast of, of people in the Batgirl movie? But it's good when you've got a good combo and they work well together. But if you get a good combo and they don't work well together, but they think they do, that's not great. Commandi, though, is never been a big draw for me. I find it odd that they're paying respects to Jack Kirby by doing Commandi. Maybe it's because all the others are already trapped in other things, but considering they just rebirthed the DC Universe, I think it would have been a good time to rebirth the New Gods and maybe do a New Gods challenge. But this is probably an easier way of doing something like this, where you're doing that improv game of the yes-hands. So I think that kind of why they did it this way. It wasn't bad, I just, I didn't I don't really care much for it. I think I would give this four mm, dinner. I gave it three and a half. That smell. I'm going to give it three. Release the ravers. I'll give it three. Did I taste good? Oh, it was so disturbing. <laughs> it really was. Yeah. Seriously. Oh. Well, let's give the Inhumans their due. Actually, I didn't want to talk about this because I was surprised by it. So uh, the next book up is Inhumans Prime number one by Marvel Comics titled Prime. Written by Al Ewing. Pencils by Ryan Sook and Chris Allen. Inks by Ryan Sook, Walden Wong, and Keith Champagny. And Paul Mounts. I was actually surprised by this. I am the world's, maybe not the world's most not fan of the Inhumans, but I am not a big fan of the Inhumans, and I actually like this book better than the X-Men Prime book. Wow. This one actually seemed like something was fucking going on, and there was a story <laughs> other than just, hey, we're starting up all these books. I would agree with that. I'm still kind of a little curious and confused because I haven't been reading Inhumans because they've always seemed like an idea that was had to be a side character in a Fantastic Four book and Marvel's been like okay we have all these characters we might as well do something with them and we own them so let's do something with them they've just always seemed like a here's this thing we have to do something with but I don't know what. Inhumans always remind me of Mean Girls like with Fetch where <laughs> they keep telling her to stop trying to make Fetch happen <laughs> you're right the Inhumans are something they've been trying to make happen for a while but this book I actually am interested in reading Inhumans right now just based off of this story. It's basically, uh, the whole book is a, a mismodge of kind of a wrap-up from the X-Men versus Inhumans and where they're going now and where they're going into the future, a lot like the X-Men Prime book was. You show the big cast of Inhumans characters that 
you actually give a crap about called together probably because they have a royal family and I guess as an inhuman you feel like you have to fucking go when Black Bolt says come. Well, let's hope he doesn't say anything. Well, yeah, this is true. When he emotes, come here. <laughs> He's creator of emojis. <laughs> You've even got fucking Daisy from the mm-hmm. shield in the background on one of these picks. And I'm like, do you really need everybody who know or people realize this is inhuman in this picture? And apparently, yes, yes, they do. And Johnny Storm. It's like a poster, really. It is actually kind of poster worthy. But the book is basically wrapping up the Black Bolt's brother, Maximus, trying to get away. But you've even got, you know, Miss Marvel in here. You've got his four people, including Triton. We're all traitors. They're fighting away. Maximus uses his powers to kind of stir up some shit and make the young fight the old, as it were. Then they kind of wrap that up real handily by some smart Inhuman peoples and then kind of move it towards and show you where they're going into the future with the Inhumans. Kind of showcase how badass they are. They go from having the royal family, which the Inhumans have had for thousands of freaking years, and they're going over to a democracy, technically, except for it's a democracy where they picked the first president. The royal family did. It's going to move into something. I really would like them to just be what the Inhumans are instead of trying to shoehorn them into the X-Men, which is what I feel like we've been trying to be fed. They just need to be a, a weird thing in like a, these guys have always been here in the background in humanity instead of a, they're here now, look, it's new X-Men, and you don't hate them because they're not mutants, even though they're basically mutants. They've basically been put back to where the X-Men were after the whole House of M thing ended and there were no more mutants and then mutants all disappeared. Oh, now there's no way that there can be more Inhumans. You've just kind of flipped them, so there's hope for the X-Men and maybe no hope for the Inhumans, but there's this guy at the beginning and he seems to be from an alternate universe, kind of telling them, oh, they don't even know what it is, but so I'm, I'm fairly certain a main part of the story is going to be about how they get Terrigen back and about how they interact with the rest of the Marvel Universe as a special, but not too super special thing. It's basically starting a new franchise inside the Marvel Universe, and uh, I thought it was pretty good. I liked it a bit more than I liked the X-Men. Part of that might have been because I liked the art in this book better than I liked the art in the X-Books. It just worked better for me. The art in the X-Books seemed really choppy, and in some of this, it was a little low on the detail, but that wasn't a bad thing. Yeah. It was just kind of like... Like where Medusa's addressing the people is kind of... There's some shots where she's not very detailed. Yeah, like, here's some space and, like, the proportions are way off on one of the shots where she's, like, walking up to talk to the person they picked to be president. Her head is massive and her torso is almost not there. Overall, I felt that the art was better than the X-Book when you got into the shots that were more detailed. I liked it a bit more. I think one thing you were saying about their, this feeling like a more cohesive story, there's really only one creative team on this. They didn't do what they did with the X-Men and have all three books get their own ten pages or so. This one is one creative team. Yeah. But there also are less Inhuman books that are launching, so they're able to to do that. It's a positive for them. One of the Inhumans books that's launching is Secret Warriors, which kind of more of a shield book. It might have Inhumans in it, but it's the Secret Warriors is a shield storyline. So you've only got really three. You've got the the Royals book, which is ironic considering they stepped down from being Royals. They're still the royal family, but there's it's like, yes, we have a queen, but the queen doesn't really have any power. It's kind of like, I guess, the, the English people. We have a queen, and technically she could overrule us, but she's never gonna. But I liked it. I actually thought this was interesting. My biggest point was removal of the royal family felt kind of weird to me. Hmm, 
but to me that's like one of their like main identifying factors was they had a royal family as the inhuman so I thought that was an interesting choice I find it really interesting and I hope they do become something of their own not just a weird X-Men light crystal light diet version I really hope they come into their own I'd give it a chance I thought it was a good start off I liked it one point it almost looked like Reservoir Gods right. <laughs> in the very beginning I thought it was interesting I was curious about the old man with his super crack <laughs> oh the Terrigen addiction yeah the, the unspoken it's like he's like oh I'm just an old man that smokes a lot of crack that's what I do <laughs> <laughs> In all serious, no, I think that it was a good start. I'm kind of with Matt on, like, there's some things where, like, portions were off, where it's like, oh, we'll just throw some extra tits on there and it'll work out, you know? I, <laughs> not that I complain, but it seems to be, like, their general thought. It's like, eh, we could redo this, but we're just gonna throw some extra titty in there. And make- I found this much more interesting than X-Men. I feel like I have more to be interested in. I'm curious to see what they're gonna do with this whole Black Bolt thing. And I think it's interesting also that they threw in the whole, like, the X-Men were gonna offer to, like, try and figure out a controlled way of doing like Terrigen experiments and stuff like that. I'm generally not a huge Inhumans fan. I think that this kind of gave me something, some curiosity to see what they're going to do with it. I gave it probably because I liked it a little bit more than the X-Men. I gave it a four Metacrack. (laughs) I gave it three and a half. Come with me if you want to be awesome. (laughs) I will give it three and a half in beginnings. I'll give it three and three quarter Terrigen Enhanced bust lines. So those were the books we read this week. To check out our other podcasts, Broke Gaming and Cut the Cord, as well as our nerd shenanigans, go check out fourcolornerds.com or our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter or at Instagram. You can find the podcast on iTunes and Google Play Music. On Stitcher. On SoundCloud. And on Podcast Addict. Be sure to rate. Review. And subscribe. Come back next week for another episode. Until then, keep reading, nerds.